She Makes Money Moves is a production of Glamour and iHeartRadio. I'm not sure if I'm making the right decisions and how I'm investing because I don't know a lot about it. I essentially rely on an investment manager to to make those decisions and just in general, what should I be doing with money that I'm saving? I'm Samantha Barry, the editor-in-chief of Glamour, and this is She Makes Money Moves. You know about the gender pay gap. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, women are typically paid about 82 cents for every dollar a man makes. For women of color, it's even less. The pay gap isn't the only factor hurting our bottom lines. Women also approach investing differently or ignore it entirely. Many of us take our lower paychecks and leave them sitting in a savings account. Listeners, that is a terrible idea. 57% of women don't invest at all, compared to 44% of men. That's according to a survey by the investments app Acorns, which also found that 61% of women felt they had a low understanding of investing compared to 44% of men. But when women do invest, it pays off. According to a STEM Connector report, women earned 12% higher returns than men when it came to individual investments. Today's guest has been saving money for most of her life. She saved and invested from a young age, and today at 37, she has a quarter of a million dollars. But she's not sure what financial steps to take next. This is her story. I'm Sarah. I live in San Francisco, and I'm 37 years old. I work in marketing and communications at a technology company, and I have been saving money since I was about 18. It always had instilled in me this idea that you should always save whatever you can and that you shouldn't spend anything unless you have the cash to spend it. So I made sure early on that I lived within my means um, as much as I could. When she left home at 17, our guest, who's asked us to call her Sarah, worked full-time at a retail job for three years before starting college. During that time, I wanted to save up money so that I didn't have to take out as much in loans. Sarah was planning for her financial future in other ways too. She enrolled in a 401k and opened an investment retirement account. My financial advisor at the time said that I was one of the youngest people he'd ever met who was interested in opening a Roth IRA. When she started college, Sarah worked part-time and went to an in-state school to save on tuition. Four years later, she graduated with about $15,000 in student loan debt. Sarah has been saving money throughout her 20s. But instead of paying off her loans early when she graduated, she decided to buy real estate. In June of 2008, she bought a house in Oregon with her boyfriend at the time. It was always really important to me that investing in property, especially not being married, that both our names were on the title because I had no idea what was going to happen. Things are great when you're in a relationship and then things go south and you can end up getting screwed on property or in financials in general. So we went in 50-50, both put down 10% with him working and with us renting out one of the rooms that helped to offset quite a bit of the cost. Unfortunately, their timing wasn't great. If you remember 2008 well, 
that was a horrible time to buy a house because two months later, the economy came crashing down. So we bought this house and we really had no choice but to essentially look at it as an investment. Shortly after graduating from college, Sarah applied for grad school. She felt like she was behind her peers and she wanted to get started on the next step right away. But it wasn't a great time to do that either. Uh, I was a product of the Great Recession and it was a very bad time to go to graduate school. So the year before when I was looking into it, it was a very good time and there were plenty of loans, plenty of grants, plenty of teaching opportunities. And then as soon as I decided that I was going to go, everything kind of fell out from under me and all of the grants were essentially pulled and the only option was to take out loans. After grad school, Sarah and her boyfriend broke up. Breakups are usually hard and when you own a house together, it gets even harder. We were stuck with this house. We couldn't sell it because the economy still hadn't really bounced back yet. So we decided to hold on to it and enter into like a business relationship. We both moved out of the house, so we were able to rent it out, and that paid the mortgage. So we figured as long as we could sustain that, it was worthwhile just to hold on to instead of selling it under what we had purchased it. So we held on to this house. We lived our separate lives. He moved to another city, and then I moved to the Bay Area. In San Francisco, Sarah continued to be frugal. I started out at a nonprofit. I had a salary that wasn't large at all, but it was something that I was able to work with and and just make sure that I was able to pay for my my life, essentially. And I've always tried to live within my means. I've had roommates for a while and just tried to keep my rent down as much as possible, tried to live in rent-controlled apartments and not eat out much. I mean, it's definitely not the most glorious lifestyle, but tried to make do with what I could and, and do cheap and free events. With the money she saved, Sarah eventually bought her ex out of the house in Oregon. I knew at some point we wouldn't be able to hold on to this house together forever. I mean, it wasn't worthwhile for either of us. Um, we came to a mutually agreeable price of the money that he had originally put into the house. Today, Sarah's in a good place financially. She's refinanced her student loans with a private bank. And she's paying down the $41,000 balance she owes from undergrad and graduate school. She doesn't make much off the house in Oregon, but it pays for itself. Every year, she tries to max out her 401k and Roth IRA. And she has that $250,000. While she continues to live beneath her means in San Francisco, she tries to enjoy her life too. When I have extra money left over, I mean, there are things that come up. I'm traveling. So I like taking vacations. I like going places. I like doing different things. But I try in general to save as much as possible, you know, upwards of like around 1500 a month. She's great at saving, but Sarah has questions about what to do with all that money. I'm not sure if I'm making the right decisions and how I'm investing because I don't know a lot about it. I essentially rely on an investment manager to, to make those decisions and just In general, what should I be doing with money that I'm saving? Right now, she's renting a home. She might want to buy a house, but she'd also like to have a baby, which would come with its own financial demands. There are plenty of ways she could spend her money. She just wants to be strategic. I definitely didn't think that I would be 37 and unmarried. 
that wasn't really in the plans, but um, it's happened. And I'm completely happy with everything that's happened. It just, it's not what I originally anticipated. And I want to have a kid at some point. And so I don't know if I'm going to marry my current partner. But if I do, I would like to know at what point is it worthwhile to have a prenuptial agreement? I'm also trying to decide, do I take money out of my savings and try to buy a house in San Francisco? So that's been a really challenging point for me, especially doing this all myself, because I don't want to assume that I'm going to get married. I don't want to assume that I'm going to have that partner. So I'm wondering what financial decisions should I make so that I'm set up appropriately for the future. More on She Makes Money Moves right after this quick break. I'm Samantha Barry. Welcome back to She Makes Money Moves. Today's expert knows the importance of saving early and planning for your financial future. Hey, 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 it's me, Tiffany, the budget nista, your favorite financial educator. I am here to help women go from where they are to where they want to be with their money. Tiffany, thank you for joining us thank again. Um, Sarah. Yes. Great story. I love Sarah. Mm-hmm. Sarah is a poster child of somebody that at a very young age, mm-hmm. was financially savvy. Mm-hmm. She's got a quarter of a million across investments and savings, and she's 37. Great. Yeah. But despite all the good financial decisions she's made on her own, it seems that she gives credit to her financial advisor and lacks confidence in her own ability. Is that common? Very common, because Sarah has taken herself as far as she knows how to take herself. You know, she's done all the right things. She saved. She lives under her means. But I think that she is not relying on the fact that if you brought yourself this far, you can also take yourself a little further. And I suspect that she has financial advisors who are not teachers. So one of the things I look for is I look for a teacher. When I sit down with you and I'm asking you questions, you're teaching me how and what we are doing. Not that I'm going to do it myself, but I want to understand. And so Sarah feels like this because they're telling her what they're doing, but they're not teaching and mm-hmm. showing her. Your knowledge should be growing with whoever your, your financial experts are in your life. They should not be hoarding information or they're not the right people. Should she be out there dating financial advisors as in like picking the right one? <laughs> yes, Is it right? absolutely. Right. I, I recently just hired someone after six months of looking because I'd outgrown my financial advisor from before. How does a financial advisor get paid? Financial advisors typically get paid in two ways. One way is they get paid a percentage of how much they're investing for you. Right. right. And another way is that you basically pay a flat fee. About how much is the percentage fee? It should never be more than 1%. Never more than 1%. They'll try to push you to 1, 1. 1.5, 1. That's hundreds of thousands of dollars potentially in a lifetime lost. What are you looking at as a flat fee for a financial advisor? What's the, the range? So the range is, I mean, I've had people who were as low as $250 a month. That's really low. And typically it maxes out at about $15,000 for the year. At the higher end of those fees, you're probably paying for someone who's more specialized, like a financial planner, right? Mm-hmm. A financial planner that does more than just manage investments. Like a financial planner at that level, mm-hmm. costing that much, is doing more than just, hey, put your money here. At 15000 I need you to dance, sing, and do backflips. Not just, hey, Tiffany, this is where you invest your money. My financial planner now, we're also talking about building a will, a trust. We are um, talking about estate planning overall. Like what happens 
if I'm sick, what does that look like? What does healthcare mm-hmm. look like in my old age? We're also going over my tax strategy. How should someone go about finding a financial planner? This is what I did. I mean, my financial planner, like, she's like, I've never seen anything like this before. I wrote down everything. As I interviewed people, I said, here's my life on paper. Here are my goals at the bottom. I had my specific goals. That's the thing about Sarah, too. She needs to get very specific. What do you want? Right. I want to retire by age 45. I want to have $2 million in the bank. I want to be debt-free by 40. Whatever that looks like, be clear on that. Sarah has some specific concerns about having a baby and buying a home. So having someone who's specialized at this stage would probably be important to her. Are there less expensive alternatives to a traditional financial advisor for someone who's just starting out? Yes. What I'm paying for is the overall advice that you can't get a machine to do. But there are things like Vanguard, Charles Schwab, where literally you can put in your age and your risk tolerance and they will manage your assets for you. Uh, So much research has been done that a person doing it does not beat a machine doing it. Right. So with a robo-advisor, the kind that you get with, like, let's say, Charles Schwab, you would only pay the operating fee to invest because you're not actually paying a person to make investment decisions for you. Something like that would probably make more sense for someone with less money to invest and a more straightforward financial situation. Mm-hmm. Let's take a step back and talk about investing in general. It, it can be overwhelming. How can we wrap our heads around the basics? Stocks, bonds, retirement? So stocks and bonds typically are how you are going to invest into either a retirement account or just a wealth account. When you're investing in retirement, what you're really saying is, I'm investing in maintaining my current lifestyle. I think people think of retirement and they're going to live like P. Diddy, like down the line. No, that's not <laughs> Am what... I not living like P. Diddy, <laughs> Tiffany, when I'm 65? Are you sure? <laughs> so, but and it doesn't mean that you can't, but your retirement account, the purpose of it is to help you maintain your current lifestyle. Now, you can also simultaneously invest for wealth, which I suggest. So then there are, yes, stocks and bonds. Stocks are a little bit more risky, right? Bonds are less so. Right. How much should you invest in stocks versus bonds in your portfolio? This is the the best breakdown. Depending on your age, you know how much you should be investing in stocks versus bonds. So the age you are is the percentage that you should be invested in bonds. bonds. Yes. Because you're closer. Yes, you're closer to retirement, right? So since Sarah is 37, are we saying that 37% of her investment portfolio should be in bonds and the rest should be in stocks? The older you get every year, you should be closer and closer to a safer portfolio. Which is bonds. Yes, which are bonds. What about investing in the stock market in general? I think a lot of new investors are really wary of losing money. I want you to think of um, the stock market as like when a kid draws a, um, a lightning bolt. So you ever see a lightning bolt? It looks like the Harry Potter scar, mm-hmm. the up and down that zigzag. The trajectory is up. Always up, but dipping on the way up. Right. So it's the dipping that people freak out about, but it's never not gone up. Right. You see what I mean? But the dipping is important if you are are, 65. Exactly. That's why you don't want to be too much in in stocks. I suggest looking at investing money in a total stock market index fund and then also investing your age in a total bond market index fund. Mm -hmm. So your money is going to be doing what the stock market has always done, go up. Right. Dipping as it goes up, but the way you protect the dipping is because every year you get safer and safer. So what is an index fund? So an index fund is a fund that mirrors the stock market, right? If you do an index fund, if you know next 10, 20, 30 years, even as I dip, I'm going to go up, 
you can let your money do its thing. Right. You know? Okay. So if you just sign up for that yeah. and kind of set it and forget it, they literally have something called target date funds where it actually adjusts for you. It says, how old are you? We're going to adjust because your target date is 65. So mm-hmm. as you get closer and closer to 65, we will actually adjust for you. We'll adjust how much you are in stocks, how much you are in bonds for you. So what if you want to invest with your values? Mm-hmm. So we're hearing from a lot of millennials and Gen Zs that where they spend their money, where they invest their money, mm-hmm. they want it to be a reflection of who they are, mm-hmm. whether that is in the companies that they enjoy or consume, whether that's in sustainability. Can you approach investing in a socially conscious way? There are literally companies that will allow for that. So there's this uh, company called Elvest. Mm -hmm. It's a woman-run, owned company. And what I like about Elvest is that they actually have a component where you can invest in your values. It it shows you like all of the investment pots and you can choose a pot that says investing in my values and then choose what your values are. So buying real estate is another way to invest, assuming you can eventually sell that property for more than you paid for it. Sarah's holding on to the house she owns in Oregon and the rental income pays for its maintenance. She's living in San Francisco where real estate is really expensive. Her rent is high, but she's concerned that if she buys a house there, she'll wipe out her savings. What can she do? I mean, I would be mindful that do you have to buy here? So I I believe that real estate is still a great way to grow wealth, um, especially if the real estate is appreciating or especially if you get a property where it's not just one unit. So Mm -hmm. like not just a one family property. So she could maybe spend more on a two family home that would give her rental income. Makes sense. She also wants to plan for a potential parenthood. How do you go down that road? A friend of mine did this. She got surrogates because she was like, she was a lawyer. She was doing well for herself. And she's like, I'm getting older. I may or may not find a boo in time but I want children. So she's got two beautiful sons and she's done it that way. And so what she did to prepare is one, she honestly sat down with mothers and asked what are the costs related when you were having a child so I can start to prepare. The biggest thing is going to be childcare. Right. Right. I mean, this is for any parent anyway. You can never know anything, everything, but just sitting down with other mothers, especially your mothers that have had children within a year. Mm -hmm. Because you tend to, after two or three years, you forget everything. Yes. If she wants to freeze her eggs, she'll need to think about the price tag there, which could be in the tens of thousands of dollars. She should also know what her insurance covers and her employer's maternity leave policy. Yes. And so something like once you get to a certain age, when you're in your 20s, the thing you look for for a job is money, 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 money. I'll do yoga and drink water. Who needs health insurance? But then once you start to get to your 30s, you're being more mindful of, hmm, you know, although this job pays $20,000 less, their insurance is amazing. More on She Makes Money Moves right after this quick break. I'm Samantha Barry. Welcome back to She Makes Money Moves. One of the things that it comes up in Sarah's story is she has had that experience in the past. She bought a house with an ex-boyfriend. Mm-hmm. She had to buy him out. That's never an easy process, mm-hmm. let's be honest. Let's break that down. Okay. Conversations with, about money with your partner. Sometimes the most difficult things it to do. It is. You have to start early. Simple and soon is what I say. I think second date with my husband. I was like, so what's your credit score? I didn't know how to make it. I didn't know how to that break is that. sexy, <laughs> Tiffany. <laughs> he was like, I don't know. I'm like, you know, who knows? Credit sexy. Yeah. So, but you have to create a, an open um, second space. Second date. Yes. But Amazing. he knew me for a while because he was yeah. like, not shocked, yeah. you know. But conversations about money can be light. Things like, um, let's use cash because, you know, I don't want to, to raise my, my credit card mm-hmm. debt and seeing like what's the reaction to that. Right. So you want to normalize the financial conversations with small things or like, you know, this date 
actually might be more expensive than it needs to be. We can always just go to the park. Right. It's hard, but it's necessary because you want to know what you're walking into. Because here's the thing. If we're dating and you're, we're thinking about marriage, I don't want you to swipe every date on a credit card. Because if we get married, I'm paying off my own dates. What if Sarah's partner is not as financially secure as she is? How should they navigate that? You have to find a common denominator when it comes to money. Because especially if, I'm assuming that if Sarah is doing better, might want to help shift her partner's relationship with money. And so in, in the beginning, I, I called myself the financial bully. I was like, you're going to do this. We're going to do this. And he was like, no. <laughs> right? That didn't work. And then I realized that, like, you know what? I had to find a common denominator, something that we both agreed upon easily when it came to money. What about prenups? When you think about prenups, you think of like movie stars mm-hmm. have prenups and you think, oh, well, that's somebody with a lot of money. What's your take on prenups? You need a prenup, especially if you just want to protect your assets. Right. Right. So when I approached my husband about a prenup, at first he was all on How'd board. you approach it? Give me the opener. So I think we were watching like television and it came up. I was waiting for the, you know, the right moment. Like I think, you know, whatever we were watching and it, prenup came up in the television show. And I was like, you know, what do you think about that? You know, I think we should get a prenup. And he was like, yeah. But he had no idea what he was talking about. He thought <laughs> prenup or like what you saw on TV. Right. And he was like, ooh, you know what I want in my prenup? That you have to make dinner at least three times a week. I'm like, sir, that's not how prenups work. <laughs> that so, is not what's happening yeah, here. Yeah, so when I broke down, like, no, it is like it, this financial document, then he got offended. Oh, okay. And he was upset with it. Like, do you think I would take your money? I would never do that. How do you how do you tackle that? You know, you want a prenup. Yes. You want to have that conversation. You don't want somebody that you love to be hurt. How do it you tackle hard. that? It was hard. You know, honestly, I said, it's not about that. Of course I trust you. I said, but it's not just me. There are people who depend on me mm-hmm. that if for whatever reason we're not together, I don't want to not be able to support them because we're going through something. And then finally, I said, so for us, the prenup was really just like, What's mine is mine. Like what I'm building is mine. My business is in that. What you're bringing to the table is yours. And what we build together. So we invest in real estate together. We split equitably. So once he realized like, oh, it made it easy that we both use the same lawyer because then it wasn't like your lawyer said, yeah. my lawyer said. It was the lawyer was there in the best interest of, of the, the document. Yes, the family. yes. Any final advice for Sarah on what has already been a very, very good financial path for her? Create your financial document where it's the state of where you are financially and the goals that you want to achieve. Then start to interview financial planners. And remember, you're looking for someone who's going to educate you on the process. That's it. You know, like you're willing to do the work. It's very obvious. You have the discipline. You have the income. You are rocking out already. So one, I want you to stand in that and acknowledge that, yo, I'm a rock star. Like I'm killing this money thing. And that what only thing you need is access to the next level of knowledge. It's easy to feel overwhelmed by investing. Plenty of people do. I know I used to. But if you're not investing, if you're leaving your money in a checking account because you're afraid to make mistakes, that is the biggest mistake of all. No matter what age you are, if you haven't started investing yet, it's time. Check the show notes for apps that make investing easy and a website that will direct you to a nearby financial advisor if you want face-to-face help. It's like this saying, the best time to plant a tree is 25 years ago. Or today. Plant your tree now. (laughs) 
To learn more about what we've talked about in this episode, visit glamour.com slash money. And if you'd like to share your story, we'd love to hear it and help you make money moves. Email us at money at glamour.com. She Makes Money Moves is a production of Glamour and iHeartRadio with new episodes dropping every Tuesday. I'm your host and Glamour's editor-in-chief, Samantha Barry. The podcast is co-written and co-produced by Kim Fusaro and Deanna Buckman with support from Lauren Brown West Rosenthal. Editorial oversight is provided by Maddie Kahn. Christina Everett is our executive producer. Mary Dew is our audio engineer. Recording help provided by Mark Van Gelder. Julie Shen heads up business and development of this podcast and Pat Singer heads up our research team. Special thanks to Tiffany Alashay and our guest Sarah for sharing her story. 